listening to the Dietitian Diaries, brought to you by Wiltshire Farm Foods. I'm Emily Stewart, a registered dietitian at Wiltshire Farm Foods, and I will be discussing all things nutrition with our podcast guests. Before we get started on our first ever episode, I just want to give a big thank you to my team at Wiltshire Farm Foods for their support. Without them, this podcast simply wouldn't be possible. I'm delighted to work for such a community-focused company, and it's so great that they're supporting this and helping to elevate the work of dietitians and other nutrition professionals, as well as the impact that good nutritional care can have on the health and well-being of vulnerable people in the community and in other settings. We've got a really great episode lined up for you this month, so let's get stuck in. In our first series, we're putting the spotlight on Malnutrition Awareness Week, an initiative now in its fourth year that was founded by Bapen and the Malnutrition Task Force in 2018 to raise awareness of undernutrition and dehydration in the UK. We thought we'd use our first episode to explore the crucial issues surrounding nutrition within the community setting and the challenges faced by those providing care. To help me delve into this important subject, I have with me today Simone Roberts, a senior community dietitian who works with older adults and those with learning disabilities. She's currently studying for a PhD in malnutrition, works with paramedics, and until recently worked for a Meals on Wheels service to identify areas where malnutrition screening can be integrated into everyday practice for older adults. Alongside these various roles, she's also the communication lead for the Older People Specialist Group of the BDA. I don't know where you find time for all of that Simone but thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and welcome to our first episode. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's really great to, to have you on today to hear about all the interesting areas that you work in um, and obviously we sort of know of each other from previous dietetic you know roles and uh, interactions between those so really looking forward to get to know you a bit better today and talk about your experience and focusing on your work around malnutrition of course it's a malnutrition awareness week just gone by so we're going to be using that as a focus point for some of our discussion today brilliant so i will be starting off with a fairly standard question but one that i think that will set the scene for the rest of the interview and i also think that listeners will, will find it really interesting so can you just tell us a bit a bit about yourself some and your areas of interest within dietetics and ultimately what led you to a career that you're in at the moment? Yeah, of course. Um, So as you said, I'm a senior community dietitian and I've been working with older adults and working with adults with learning disabilities in care homes and also older adult care homes as well. I I love food. Food is my most favourite thing ever. And so it was a natural progression to have that interest in food and take it further and connect it sort of with the medical side of food as well, which ultimately led me to a career in dietetics. But when it comes to older adults, working with older adults is a real privilege. It's, it's an area of dietetics where you have individuals who've already lived a whole and full life. They've got the best stories to share. And so being able to support them in their later years with their nutritional health is so important. And it's something that I have dearly loved and dearly enjoyed for the past few years and is making a very big impact on my PhD as well. I can really imagine the, the, the exciting link between your PhD and, and, and what you just described to us in terms of your, you know, your focus, your focus clinically. And um, I couldn't agree more about older adults, an exciting area to work in. There's, you know, of course, a lot of emerging research and, and interesting things going on into the, in terms of the nutritional needs for older adults. But as you say, they're just such a great group to interact with and to chat with. And they always have really great life stories to, to, to share 
when talking about their nutritional concerns or or indeed just just talking in general so um i couldn't agree more with that definitely and i think it's really exciting that you're doing a phd in malnutrition which we will come on to talk about a bit later on uh, but really you know that's such a bread and butter area for dietitians isn't it so i think it's really great that you're that you're actually focusing so much time to learn more about that and to offer more to everybody else that wants to learn about it being that being that dietetics is, is such an area of expertise for malnutrition. It really is. So that's a really good way to set the scene for the rest of the conversation, I hope. But as, as I've mentioned a couple of times, it has been Malnutrition Awareness Week, which is a focus area for, for the conversation today. And I'm just keen to sort of set the scene of that a little bit and to talk about your role as a community dietitian, being that you've done that for a number of years in the past. So what would you say that the role of the community dietitian is in meeting patients' nutritional and hydration requirements? I think it's actually really important to have our community dietitians because it's a very different role to the acute dietitian role where often the individuals that you're seeing are already sick. So they come in for very specific needs, they're unwell, and they're stuck in in one area, in a bed, and you get to see them quite easily. In the community, you get so much more. You really get to delve into the lives of people. You visit their homes and you don't just pick up on the fact that they may be losing weight, so therefore at risk of malnutrition, but you may pick up on they might not have any food in their cupboards. They may be struggling to mobilise around their homes, so they've got cupboards full of food, but they can't cook it. They can't carry a cup of tea into the lounge and anymore because they're not very stable. They might not be eating because they're just lonely. You know, they're very isolated and they're unable to get out on their own. Or maybe they need support with other things. Like maybe we need to get occupational therapy in to fit some rails and to help them with simple, basic things like getting to the bathroom. Now, all of those things have a really big impact on nutrition and hydration because someone who doesn't feel comfortable getting to the bathroom is going to drink less because they don't want to go as much. Someone who can't cook their own meals anymore because they don't feel very stable is going to eat less and then they're ultimately going to lose weight. So when it comes to the community, and it's not just older adults, my area is older adults, but this also works with young people in the community, you know, our children, people who have just had babies who maybe can't get out to the clinics themselves. All of this is part of community dietetics and it's a really, really important field. I feel like we prevent people from getting into hospital with the work that we do. So we prevent people from getting sicker. Absolutely. And it is it is so important that there is a strong team behind that. And I'm thinking along the along the lines of my role as well in terms of making sure the food that is produced that is often most accessible and suitable for the sort of people that you just described is as suitable as it can be nutritionally as well to try and enhance their nutrition and and to reduce that risk of malnutrition as well. But what you've described is just a, a really great summing up of the holistic approach of dietetics, which I know that, you know, it spans across specialities of course but particularly in the community because you do have that complete overall eyes on on their living situation a lot of the time you know you talked about food in their cupboards and 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 seeing them mobilize around their own space you really do get that full picture which you sometimes don't get in when, when you're seeing somebody in the acute environment 
You really do. Unless you get to have those conversations, which, as we know, is not always possible for various different reasons. I think it's a really exciting area. And I know when I worked in community dietetics, I loved it. I really loved it. I really loved having that connection with people. And then you may not go and see them in their home as frequently as you'd like, but you can always pick up the phone and they can do the same. And it's just nice to have that that continuation of, of communication with them. Definitely. Yeah, it really is. It really is a welcoming. They welcome you into their homes and in to their lives and you do see so much more than you might be able to see in the acute environment and you get that little bit more time with them as well which often allows you to tease out those areas where you can put support in mm, absolutely and maybe just focus on on one smaller area in one of your interactions rather than feeling as though you have to cover as much as possible um, which I always valued and I found it quite a autonomous role in terms of managing your own time which I really enjoyed you know yes you're mobile you're on the road you get to sort of decide who you see when providing everybody gets seen of course but you can fit that in with where you're going when and I just found that side of it was quite satisfying as well as the actual patient interaction there's a lot of job satisfaction with this kind of role there's a lot but like you said it's also really interesting because no two days are the same and um, I've been covering an entire county for the past few years and I've seen areas of the county I never knew existed so there's bonuses to the job as well in that sense and great just just really great to be able to be involved in people's lives in that way Definitely. I mean, you've painted such an exciting picture of it as well, Simone. I hope that anybody listening who was maybe thinking about having a change or any students or anything like that might be um, encouraged to to look at going into community because I think you've really painted a very exciting picture of it. So thank you for that. Yeah, thank you for that. I don't I don't want to sound as I'm going to go on to a negative now, but I'm coming on to one of the themes of, of Malnutrition Awareness Week, which, um, as you'll be aware, is around challenges. And they, they sort of framed that as Challenges Tuesday. So they were getting people to share on social media what some of their challenges were around meeting nutrition hydration needs for the people that they supported so i've seen some really great ones on twitter and and ones that i certainly resonated with in terms of raising the importance of malnutrition or malnutrition being picked up too late which is another common one as well that we can we can uh, certainly relate to as dietitians so i wonder if maybe you could share some of your your challenges with us in terms of focusing on on malnutrition and and your role sure one of the areas that has been a real challenge especially over the past 18 months while we've had covid-19 and the coronavirus pandemic has been almost the confusion around the public health messaging that's been out there around obesity. What's been happening with a lot of our older adults and their families is they've been encouraged themselves to try and lose weight because they feel like it's protective if they were to become unwell. Unfortunately, that process of trying to lose weight has resulted not in actual fat mass loss, but the loss of muscle mass. And that combined with being isolated, unable to get out of the house as usual, has resulted in an awful lot more older adults now being frailer, less stable, at higher risk of falls. And of course, that weight loss, which was unnecessary, has led to malnutrition. And they're now at higher risk of becoming unwell, going into hospital. It's going to take them a lot longer to heal if they do become unwell. And we're also seeing a lot more pressure injuries as well in particular higher grade pressure injuries 
um, where the skin simply doesn't want to heal because they haven't had a really balanced diet over the period of time where they've been trying to lose this weight. And it really does come down to this big confusion about public health messaging. As we know, the messages are aimed at everybody and they don't differentiate between older adults, younger adults or children. They just they're just the messages out there. It does it it leads to an awful lot of problems for people, particularly when we then go in and encourage that higher energy, higher protein intake. They often aren't sure, who do I turn to? Who do I listen to? My grandson who says I should lose weight or my dietitian who says I need to gain weight or my doctor who maybe isn't sure anymore because there's so much back and forth. And I do think there is some responsibility out there for people to really think about those messages going out and and to put malnutrition as an equal pegging to obesity when it comes to health crisis in this country because it's out there and it's widespread and it really doesn't seem to get the same kind of press as obesity, which I think is a real shame. It, yeah, it absolutely is, is a real shame. And I can completely appreciate the frustration, particularly over the COVID-19 pandemic, when all of a sudden we've seen, you know, there was a lot of messages before, let's be honest, but all of a sudden we've seen even more and just not the way that it's shared is, is just not covering anywhere near as much as it needs to cover in terms of all the different nuances and, you know, different groups and the way it affects different people. I know that the BDA's older persons, the older person specialist group do a lot of great work around this. You know, you produce loads of really great infographics and everything like that. I'm just, what kind of response do you, do you get to those on social media and things like that? Do you ever get, I'm just interested to know if you get sort of people that are quite surprised at your message or if actually the people that are engaging with it know the message anyway. I'm just quite curious on that. It's, it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, I think we've been shouting loud from the rooftops for a while now. So the message is definitely getting out there. But we do get some surprise around some of the content that we put out, but always in a really positive way. People really engage with it and they share it. And we get really, really good buy-in through weeks like Malnutrition Awareness Week because people are waiting for that specific advice for older adults that comes from a group that is completely passionate about supporting nutrition in older adults. So we are really, really pleasantly surprised every time we put something out, which we feel might cause some ripples, that it does really come back with a really positive response from everybody. And we're working on a project at the moment to create a resource that will support healthy eating in older adults. This is not for adults who are malnourished. This is just for general adults. At the moment, it's going through the PPI process. So patient and public involvement process to see what they think of the research that's come up. It's been a massive project and we hope that it will provide some guidance for older adults to stay well, not get malnourished. This is what the aim is. But with all of the backing of the research and lots of input, not just from dietitians across the field, but also from all of the other allied health professionals and all of the other members of the MDT who might not quite fit under that bracket. We've had lots and lots of different stakeholders involved, which we really, really hope is going to be a resource that's going to really spark this conversation that nutrition for older adults is not the same 
as it is for our younger adults. So I'm really excited to see that come to fruition. <laughs> yeah, I, I, can, I can tell by just your description of it. And it sounds like exactly what we need, to be honest, um, because it sounds as though you're, you know, you're still got a message of healthy eating because, of course, we still want people to eat well, but it looks different. For, for different types of people um, and it sounds as though you've got all the right people behind that to, to get that message out there and um, you know the, the groups for the BDA it's all done on a voluntary basis I just think it's 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 a really inspirational thing that, that your group are doing I'm, I'm a member of the food services specialist group committee and I constantly come away sort of feeling inspired about the the time and and everything that people are willing to to give up for their area of specialism and certainly one of the inspiring groups for me is the older person's specialist group in terms of the content you put out and uh yeah that project you just described sounds fantastic thank you can't wait to hear more about it i guess we'll find out more on twitter will we you will definitely as it goes through the various stages it will um come out and then there will be an invitation that you're more than welcome to join us to look at it at the next stage so uh look forward to working together even more which would be great yeah that'll be great i am i'm actually in the group as well kind of like as a as a as a back a back seated member i suppose so yeah really look forward to hearing more about that thank you for sharing that with us so we've i guess that would actually lead on quite nicely to my next question because i i understand a bit about the scope of your work and i've just learned a great deal more in the last in the last 20 minutes um and i know that the combination of your community dietetic work and old person specialist group work that you're a real advocate for the food first approach to, to managing malnutrition and obviously for myself working for a company like Wiltshire on foods we are all about the food we're not producing any supplements or anything we're, we're, we're all about the food and of course the food first approach to to preventing and treating malnutrition so Simone can you just share with us what what is your thoughts on why a food first approach is so important to managing malnutrition? Sure. Um, so we actually use the term for food based. And the reason we use that now instead of food first is often when you say the word first, it suggests that something might come second. But actually, when it comes to using a food based approach, if you use it really smartly and in the right way, you don't need a second because it actually does the work that it's, it aims to do. Now, as far as I'm concerned, food like I said at the beginning, is amazing. I love food. And if you can support people by having real food, then you are doing your job properly as a dietitian. We're really massive advocates over at the Older Person Specialist Group for the food-based approach. But I think the really key message around that is that it should be a whole food approach and not just looking at energy. So not just using fats and sugars. So butter and cream are often the go-to for food fortification, but they're not really the most balanced options out there. And there are loads of other options that can be used. They're fairly inexpensive, actually available on the supermarket shelves or for our care homes out there, they can purchase them through their suppliers, which is great. And they give some alternative options. My favourites are things like skim milk powder, which is full of protein, or you can use um, soya milk protein powder if you've got someone who can't have milk, egg protein powder or pea protein powders, or really inexpensive products now. Nuts, of course, are amazing. Nut butters are brilliant. And as soon as you introduce nuts, as well as having energies and proteins, you're also introducing fibre, which is great. And I love to squish nuts up and sprinkle them on top of a apple crumble it gives it a really good crunch as well and then there's seeds and dried fruit they're also full of fiber 
as well as having a lot of protein and energy for actually a really small quantity. Again, they're great products to pop on your porridge, you know, sprinkle some seeds on top of your porridge, or again, in a casserole or a lasagna or any of those tasty meals, really, which are nice comfort food with the winter coming. Um, I do like the hot meals with the winter coming, but you definitely can fit a lot of food fortification in them without having to increase the quantity. And I think particularly with older adults, a large plate of food can be a little bit overwhelming and often they they won't eat it because it just seems too much to manage. So a smaller portion that's full of all the good stuff and that tastes great is definitely a really good way to use that food-based approach. Absolutely, Simone. I I couldn't agree more. And I like the term food-based. I definitely agree with you. I think it encapsulates more of what we're trying to achieve with the overall aim. And um, definitely like your your meal ideas for the seeds and the the savoury savoury dishes as well. Um, I think in my experience from older, sort of older, working with the older population, that's not something they might have historically been used to putting into their food. But now, as we know, they are widely available, like in all the supermarkets, and they don't cost a lot of money anymore. I think previously they used to be quite expensive ingredients, but now they are much more affordable. So soups, stews, casseroles, I think they're all great for adding those those seeds too for, for extra nourishment. As you say, it's just moving away from the traditional butter and cream, which, yeah, is, is fantastic, like you say, but does have its limitations and particularly you don't always want everything to taste very rich and, and buttery do you so i think having those alternatives to to offer people recipe ideas is is a fantastic way to support them yeah definitely and it's about choice at the end of the day like you said um butter in mashed potato tastes great but if you don't want to put butter on everything and you can still use some of your sweeter options as well you know nut butters can be very sweet pop some pop some peanut butter on some apple slices and you've got some great fortified options and also cheese cheese is brilliant for fortified meals put cheese on your mashed potato and straight away again you're you're really increasing the value of that food product tastes great and you're not increasing the quantity having those different options and having a variety in your back pocket is almost like the dietitian's toolkit for malnutrition and milky drinks are fantastic of course not everyone loves a milky drink so having a variety having choices being able to come up with an alternative when someone doesn't want to have those milky drinks it really does make your life easier as a dietitian but it creates a connection with them also because roasted pecans might be something they had as a child and all of a sudden it's an option you're bringing up again and it sounds brilliant and they will then incorporate that into their diet so it can be a really nice way of connecting through food as well definitely and it all comes down to that you know patient client-centered approach resident-centered approach no matter which setting you're working in yeah and as we said earlier thankfully in the community you do sometimes get a bit more time to get to know somebody on that level where you can understand their preferences in a bit more detail than you might be able to in another setting. So, um, yeah, you speak so passionately about it. So um, I'm sure you've got such a great, you know, repertoire of recipes up your sleeve to share with people. I borrow them from all of my older adults. They come up with the ideas and then I just store them to share with everyone else. So it's great if you have the time to listen. You can uh, create almost your own recipe book of ideas. Definitely. And I think it's a a good way to spark up a conversation as well isn't it oh I had a lady who really liked to do this or a chap who really liked to do this and then yeah it's just a good sounding board for getting down to the the important bits of the conversation so thank you so much Simone that's been a, a really good chat about the the food-based approach as we will now refer to it 
I think we've sort of covered this in, in the, all the conversations we've had, but would you say that malnutrition is one of the most common issues you see in the community? 100%. It is the most common issue that I see in the community. I can imagine. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not surprised by that at all. What else is very common? Is there anything that would sort of come quite close second to that? Or is it a bit more of a wider spectrum? It tends to be a wider spectrum. I'd say what comes alongside that then is your type 2 diabetes. That's often one that we get a lot in the community. We do see, obviously see some obesity. We It is there and, and we do support with that as well. After that, it's sort of wide ranging. But what's really interesting is if you delve into it, it all does come back to some sort of malnutrition because even obesity is a form of malnutrition. It's the wrong type of nutrients. You're not getting what you need for your body to be at its optimal health. Um, and even a lot of the time, individuals with type 2 diabetes, it's a very similar story as well. They're not nourishing their bodies in the in the way that's best for them. And that could be prior to the diagnosis or sometimes post, again, because they have that knee-jerk reaction to cut out anything that could possibly have sugar in and as a result lose weight. So it is, it's a real balancing act out there in the community. We don't tend to see people as sick as they would be in the acute environment. We tend to see people who are reasonably well. They just need some additional support to prevent them from becoming very unwell. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised by your answers at all, but I think it's really interesting the way you then led on to say, but ultimately, you know, it all comes back to, to malnutrition and, and poor nutritional status. Um, and there's always areas to be unpicked, as you say, that, that, that come back to that. So aside from malnutrition, which clearly is, is the most common sort of issue that you see among among the people that you, you support in the community, do you see quite a lot of dysphagia? Yeah, we do see dysphagia in the community. And what's interesting about dysphagia or moving on to texture modified meals is it isn't just for people who have dysphagia. So as you know, dysphagia is where we have um, concerns with swallowing or maybe the tongue isn't working as it should do. And so people become at risk of asthma aspirating the food into their lungs and therefore at high risk of aspiration pneumonia. Um, What we actually see a lot in the community is people who are opting for softer options for lots of different reasons. Uh, That could be poor dentition, which is often one of the most common, reduction in dexterity, so they're no longer able to cut up their meals as easily, or it could simply be choice. They much prefer softer options um, like a shepherd's pie or something similar. So what's lovely in particular is that there's so many options out there now to have those texture modified meals delivered, which I think is so important. was a particular couple I was supporting and um, the wife had had a stroke. She was no longer able to manage anything above a puree texture and he was dutifully blending everything down and trying his absolute best to support her, um, which is wonderful. But this is a gentleman who prior to his wife's stroke had never even turned on the washing machine. She'd done everything around the house. He'd never so much as made a slice of toast. So it was quite a learning curve. Um, So actually for him, it was really lovely that there was the opportunity to have meals delivered that were texture modified. Um, And that made a really big difference to him because he was able to have less of that sort of getting the blender out type and 
have more of a rest around his own lunchtime. And the the biggest thing that I found was he was actually the one losing weight because he was so busy supporting his wife that he wasn't actually feeding himself. So it, it is something that is seen out there. And it's definitely something that should be considered by any dietitian. Is the texture of food correct? And can we work with our colleagues at speech and language if necessary to modify the texture? Or is it a texture chosen by choice? So actually, can we just guide the texture? And there's some great stuff going on in care homes at the moment. There's a real move to support the presentation of texture modified meals and a lot more molding going on, a lot more piping going on than before. And a real awareness that mixing all of the textures together into some kind of baby gloop is it's not very appetizing. I mean, I certainly wouldn't eat it and it mixes all the smells together. So it, it loses a lot of its appeal and a push again. Some care homes are not allowed to do um, molded textures because the head office requirements are that food isn't frozen once it's produced, which is a really important part of the molding process. So I think a lot of those head offices are now coming on board with the benefits of having molded foods that actually look like the foods that they're supposed to be. And that, again, is making a big difference to texture modification. It's an area that is going to be under review for sure. I know research comes out all the time, but for now, there's some really good stuff out there that people can access if they do need texture modified meals. Absolutely. I think that's such an interesting example you gave about your your couple that you were seeing who were, you know, the chap was supporting his wife with, with texture modified meals. I mean, absolutely fantastic effort um, on his part, but it's it's certainly no mean feat. It's very tiring to, to, to go through that process, even if you do kind of batch cook which takes a lot of planning in itself doesn't it to go through that process and then to to actually want to sit down and eat it at the end of it sort of liken it to when you cook a big sunday roast and actually you sit down and think i'm not really hungry for this anymore (laughs) so can you imagine what it's like after trying to blend up your own texture modified food it can be really difficult and and that's one of the visits that really stands out to me because as I was leaving he said i hate to ask but how do i turn the washing machine on and it was one of those so wholesome moments that he was trying so hard and he managed to create this lovely breakfast and he was really trying but that that's the beauty of working in the community I guess the involvement that you have in people's whole lives not just their food yeah well thank you so much for for sharing that example and I'm sure that you you taught him a number of things not just about food but also turning on the washing machine apparently so thank you for that yeah I'm really interested to understand a bit about the MDT approach in the community. I have worked in the community myself, but the the bulk of my clinical work was in the acute setting. So what is your experience of the MDT approach in the community? I guess what are some of the, you know, what are some of the, the good ways it works? It's a really, really good system in the community and it has to be because you you can't just pop around the corner and speak to somebody who you need to speak to. You really do have to reach out to each other. But we have a had, we have a great working relationship with our speech and language therapists. You have a really close connection with the social workers and the team of social workers. You're also working with care agencies a lot. They are often a goldmine of information and they're often the ones that 
we'll add the skimmed milk powder to the milk for you if that's the if that's the option that you've gone for. So it really does work quite well. And um, here I'm based in Hertfordshire. Here in Hertfordshire, um, there's a care home improvement team that we've worked very closely with. The team of pharmacists that support in the community and in care homes, we're very closely with them. And our colleagues in prescribing support, our prescribing support dietitians, we work extremely closely with them also. And uh, between us all, I think we come up with the best solutions for people and the most person-centered solutions as well. Um, But you really do have to reach out to the MDT because they're really key to the best outcomes for your patients. And we are very fortunate here that the MDT is fantastic and we do have that fantastic working relationship. Um, But you do have to start that conversation first if you need it. So I think that's the key here. Always reach out to the MDT if you need that additional support. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. You you know, the moment you start off on that positive uh, base, then it will just grow from there. Absolutely. And I think we can't forget as well what, what you described at the beginning of the conversation, Simone, around having that additional time and getting to know people a bit better. We would hope that everybody would feel similar to that in their professions. So already you've got a resource of people that have this really full picture of the people that you're supporting and you can bounce off each other with that. So I imagine that that is really, really beneficial. It really is. And it really does support the patients themselves, which ultimately is the goal, is is supporting the patients. So the more you can work as a team, the better that quality of support will be in the end. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. It's, it's, it's always great to hear about people's different experiences of the MDT and their different specialities. It's, it's a real interest area of mine. So thank you. And I think that the listeners as well would find that really interesting. So I'm going to touch on another focus point of Malnutrition Awareness Week, which has been hydration. So at Malnutrition Awareness Week, they've been asking for people to communicate what they would consider the important messages are about the dangers of dehydration. And also some of the common mistakes that that people make when they're caring for someone around managing their hydration. So, Simone, what are your top tips for supporting patients to meet their hydration needs in your community settings that that you've been working in? So one of the things we've done this week on social media is we challenged people to identify how many millilitres of fluid fitted into some cups. They actually were cups that were Uh, The photos of the cups were taken by members of the Older Persons Specialist Group Committee. And the idea of asking people to guess was we really hope they get it wrong. And they mostly did. And the idea behind that was to challenge the message that it's six to eight cups per day to remain hydrated. But that's it doesn't really work out because what if your cups are 150 mils? That's not very lot. Not, that's not a lot of fluid at all. Um, and then what if your cups are 400 mils? Like our, our events manager has a coffee cup that's 400 mils. I think if she drank eight of those a day, she'd be, uh, she'd be bursting with fluid because they're really big cups. So the big message for us was we need to get away from seeing cups. We really need to get back to talking specifically about milliliters because people aren't daft. People can calculate how many milliliters they've had. And in fact, there's loads of smart devices out there now that are targeted at every age group that can really support you with drinking your milliliters. You could buy a jug that's got a specific amount in there and track your drinking throughout the day. If you're going to do that for an older adult, though, make sure it's small enough that they can manage to lift it and it's not too large. That's really important. The other message around hydration, which is my absolute favorite, is around tea and coffee. Tea and coffee are not dehydrating because the amount of caffeine in them is negligible, the effect that it has on the body. Tea is, of course, 
the British nation's favourite and it is the most drunk drink in UK care homes. So taking tea and coffee out of the equation would be disastrous. And there has been occasions where people have been advised not to have tea and coffee. It can irritate the bladders. It could be a good idea to have a decaffeinated version if that is something that particularly bothers people. But I mean, I I love my coffee in the morning. I certainly wouldn't skip it. And I definitely count it in my hydration for sure. They're just fantastic messages. Um, The tea and coffee, you know, I despair when I see people recommending not not to have tea and coffee because it's dehydrating. It's just such a tiny, tiny, tiny part of the of the of the of the full picture. And actually, was really interested to hear about your your milliliter kind of example that you've been doing on on social media. I've actually seen it, and I I I think it's a really interesting way to move forward with how we recommend that people have fluids. And you know, there's all those bottles available um, that tell you how many milliliters you you've drunk and they have little encouraging messages on i think it'd be great to see some of those in smaller volumes for, for older people and i'm sat here with a with a pint of water that i would you know i would sort of say i might fill that two-thirds and that might be one of my cups but that's nowhere near the 150 milliliters that we we use as the standard message is it definitely and it doesn't have to be water um i'll tell you a secret i really don't like the water here in england I grew up in Wales in the softest water area you can imagine. So the water here tastes a little bit strange. So always put squash in to change the flavour. So hands up in the seven years I've been here, I don't think I've ever drunk a glass of plain water. However, I'm very well hydrated because I drink my squash. I have my tea and coffee, maybe a glass of juice, glass of milk. You know, I have lots of varieties of fluid throughout the day, really. And I don't worry about what that fluid is. I just drink to what I know my body needs. So have a variety and offer a variety. If you're listening to this from a care home or, you know, in an acute setting, make sure there's lots of variety on that drinks trolley. And colour matters, particularly to people who may be um, living with dementia. You know, plain water doesn't look as appetising maybe as some orange squash or some blackcurrant squash. So definitely use colour as well as a way to encourage people to be hydrated. It's just some of the some of the things that I like to share with people when it comes to hydration. Yeah, they're really great tips. They're really great tips. And I think you certainly won't be alone in your feeling around around the water. Um, there's a number of areas around the country where it's quite hard, one of one of which is where I live. So I, I'm used to it, so I don't mind it. I grew up with it. <laughs> but, but definitely, you know, it, it's just not for everybody. And we need to get that message across that it doesn't have to be water. And although as dietitians, we've been saying that for, for a long time, it still, it still takes a while for the message to get through, doesn't it? Like, as with all the messages. Yeah, it does. Yeah, so that's really great. Great to hear about your initiatives that you've been doing as part of the BDA Older Persons Specialist Group, as I said. So I do want to talk about your PhD before we finish up, because we briefly mentioned it in the beginning, but I'm really interested to kind of learn a bit more about that, if you wouldn't mind sharing. So can you tell us a bit more about your area of research and perhaps what led you to undertaking the project? Yeah, so um, the study is actually with the University of Hertfordshire part of the Centre for Research in Public Health and Community Care, which is called CRIPAC. I'm very fortunate that it's funded by the National Institute for Health Research. And what we're looking at is we're looking at malnutrition screening in particular, and we identified two areas in the community where older adults 
are contacted or have contact with people where malnutrition isn't always part of the process, but could very easily be. And that's our Meals on Wheels services who have the privilege of going in most days of the week and our paramedics who go in when something goes wrong generally. Now, often with paramedics, the particularly with older adults, maybe if they've had a fall, but they're not hurt, they don't need additional medical attention. It's actually better to leave them at home because going into hospital itself can be a really traumatic experience. But as we know, falls maybe as a result of malnutrition, but there's no formal process in place for paramedics to be able to feed that back and then get that input from a dietitian or a GP to make sort of to make that intervention early so that we don't continue with the malnutrition worsening, the risk of malnutrition becoming higher and potentially leading on to a fall that then does require medical attention. Similarly with Meals on Wheels, they don't have to check for malnutrition. Now, we know that the service I worked for did, uh, the service here in Hertfordshire did, but actually services across the UK, they're not required to check for malnutrition as part of their service provision. Interestingly enough, in America, they are, and which is uh, another thing that led on to this research itself. So by working with those sort of two very different groups of people, I'm interested to see if, if we can sort of incorporate malnutrition screening into the everyday process, not as an addition, but as part of the things that they do all the time. Um, so it becomes very much part of the normal working pattern. Um, and the reason why I stumbled across this PhD, as well as I'm massively passionate about malnutrition and in particular malnutrition prevention. That's an area which I've worked in now for a, a considerable amount of time. So any way we can get that on the agenda and increase screening is something I'm super interested in. But I actually live with a paramedic and um, every time she would come home from work, every webinar she'd earwig on, every time I talked to her about the latest food fortification training I was developing or malnutrition screening training, she became really interested and would often come in and she still comes in now and would say, um, I saw somebody today and I think they're at risk of malnutrition. And I realized that she's doing that organically, but actually she has nowhere to go with that. She can't pass that on. So by giving her the basics, the basic tools, she was able to start talking that language. So it was really interesting for that. And that really inspired me to involve paramedics in the process. And they're a wonderful bunch of people who, as dietitians, we often don't have an awful lot of input with. I've met one or two in the community where I might have visited a patient who has been unwell and have had to call an ambulance on their behalf. But we often don't interact with them because we don't find ourselves in accident and emergency where they um, where they would be offloading their patients when bringing them into hospital. So it's been a really interesting process so far. And I'm really enjoying working with this new group of individuals who who, again, have that opportunity to go into people's homes and see them at a challenging time in their life and then make those clinical decisions, as well as our Meals on Wheels teams. And I've got a massive passion for Meals on Wheels. They really do perform a fantastic service. And just having that social contact for older adults is so important. And I hope to utilise that to increase malnutrition screening then in the community. Wow, that sounds so interesting, but particularly, well, both of the, you know, working with paramedics, very, very interesting and relevant, as you said, in terms of the contact they have with the same kinds of people that community dietitians have a lot of the time. And um, of course, Meals on Wheels is an area that I'm interested in myself being, being, being the company that I work for. So 
I just think that it's a really interesting sounding project and covering such a wide breadth of, of touch points in terms of older adults and, and the malnutrition risks. I wish you all the best with it. That sounds absolutely fascinating. And I bet it is a lot of work. Um, so <laughs> absolutely, you know, well done for focusing on that. Thank you. So we are going to finish off quite soon, Simone, and I want to link in with another malnutrition awareness, awareness theme, uh, which is actually just one that's a bit of fun around um, nutrition and patient superheroes i think that sometimes we don't get a chance to sort of share who inspires us whether it is colleagues or or other members of the team or or patients indeed so i think it's a nice opportunity to do that and i hope you don't mind this question but could you tell us simone who your nutrition and patient superheroes are and why so definitely all of the volunteers at the older people specialist group the entire team they come from such a wide range of backgrounds. We've got our, our student on there as well on the committee. We've got people in nutrition support. We've got academics. They are such a fantastic bunch of people. And as you said, as you know yourself being a part of a committee, you give up your own time freely in order to really support your own area of dietetics that you're really passionate about. And I think they definitely deserve a shout out 100%. Um, but when it comes to patients, I don't think I could single out a single one of my my older adults that I've worked with. They're all amazing and and I love visiting them. I've loved visiting them and just they've put on maybe a tiny bit of weight and that celebration for them because they've tried so hard to gain even that pound, you know, and the celebration and the effort that they really put in to, to maintain weight, which is mostly the priority with older adults or put on that little bit of weight when they need to. They really are a wonderful bunch of people and anyone who hasn't worked with older adults, I highly recommend it. It's extremely rewarding. But I think anyone working in nutrition and dietetics and the um, allied health professionals and the MDT that support us, everyone really deserves a massive shout out and a big pat on the back. And it was allied health professionals day yesterday. So I hope everyone had a nice piece of cake to celebrate. And cake is my favorite thing to prescribe. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Celebratory. What a celebratory uh, food to tell people to encourage them to eat it. Thank you. That was that was fantastic. Yeah, a really great tea. Shout out your colleagues like that. So I'm sure they'll be delighted to hear that as well and really sounds as though all of the older people you work with inspire you and I yeah that's really really lovely to hear thank you they really do so thanks again Simone that's all we have time for today thank you for joining us on our first ever guest on the dietitian diaries it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and to learn more about your research and your previous roles and also just to hear you speak so passionately about the area that you work in so I've really enjoyed our time together thank you for coming on to the podcast Thank you for having me. Once again, a massive thank you to Simone, who's been a fantastic guest, and I've really enjoyed our discussions. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe to The Dietitian Diaries. And if you're interested in learning more about the wide range of texture modified food that Wiltshire Farm Foods has to offer, please visit specialistnutrition.com to learn a bit more about our products and to organize a tasting session with your team. Before we leave you, I want to tell you a little bit more about the company I work at, Wiltshire Farm Foods. Our development team has poured its heart and soul into launching a groundbreaking softer food range created specifically for those with swallowing difficulties. We believe passionately in dining with dignity and I work closely with our chefs and MPD team to ensure we create meals which are delicious and nutritious as well as meeting a range of dietary needs. 
As a solution to help with combating malnutrition, we have devised a mini meals extra range, which comprise of smaller, more manageable portions, but they each contain a minimum of 500 calories and 20 grams of protein per portion. We also have meals available in levels four, five, and six, so pureed up until soft and bite-sized, and offer different dishes for every occasion, including breakfast, dinner, and afternoon tea. Meals come pre-prepared and are delivered directly to customers' doormat at no additional cost. For all the latest sneak peeks and updates on the next episode of the podcast, follow at SNWFF on Twitter, or alternatively, check out the podcast section that's coming soon to the Wiltshire Farm Foods website. If you enjoyed this episode don't forget to hit subscribe and consider leaving us a five star rating or review finally thank you for taking the time to listen to the dietitian diaries which has been brought to you by wiltshire farm foods episode two will be out in november so make sure you tune in for that next month thanks for listening 